You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. Throughout this series of eschatology, we come to the last section that will deal with the millennium and the eternal state. I've included the second coming because it is part and parcel of both the tribulation and the millennium. But now you should know the orders eschaton, the order of the eschaton. So if I quiz you, you should be able to tell me what is the, the very next event that we are waiting for. Number one, it is the, gosh, you forgot, the rapture. What follows the rapture? Immediately, the tribulation. And what follows the tribulation? The second coming. What follows the second coming? The millennium. What follows the millennium? The what? Oh. Okay, yeah, eternal state. What follows the eternal state? <laughs> Who's that guy? <laughs> we'll pray for you, brother. <laughs> it's the eternal state. <laughs> There's nothing that follows that. Well done. So after the rapture, we have a seven-year period, which is known as the tribulation period. There are certain events, though, that takes place... At that point, and I want to point out to you, I want to look at the significance of the second coming and the conclusion of the tribulation period. Second Thessalonians chapter 7, verse chapter 2, verse 7. Yes, if there's a 7 in your Bible, better get rid of that Bible. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until until he is out of the way. Interesting statement. There is a restrainer at work at the moment. So the Work of the lawless one is already currently at work, but he has not been revealed yet. But when the restrainer is removed, the lawless one will be revealed. There is some debate. Is it the church or is it the Holy Spirit? We can can consider that on Wednesday. And the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Both words relate to his sudden appearance out of nothing, his there, and his presence. And then his coming. That is literally coming from another place. That language is not used of the rapture. Appearance is, but the word for coming is him returning. This is known as the second coming. But take note what is connected to it. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there's going to be a revelation of the lawless one, but there will also be the revelation of the righteous one. It is he who comes to destroy the lawless one and all those who followed him. The second coming is both hope for the tribulational saints and finality for unbelievers and the lawless one. How do we know that Jesus comes back post-tribulation? And This is an argument that those who do not believe what we believe say, well, Jesus does not come back 
post-tribulation, he comes back at the end of the millennium. Post-millennium. Matthew 24. I have avoided theological terms. I tried not to keep the, to, to make this a theological discussion or study of eschatology. My goal was to merely point out the scripture. So I kept the language um, out of the sermons. This morning I will mention three terms in, a, in its theological sense because I think it's needful to understand how they relate to the subject of the millennium. But yeah, look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming. You've got those two words again. Appear and coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When does the second coming take place? It says, right? After the tribulation. It's that simple. Immediately after the tribulation, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Jesus comes post-tribulation. But turn over to chapter 25, verse 31. So keep in mind, tribulation... Immediately after the tribulation, the second coming, look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, pointing back to chapter 24, and, uh, and all the angels with Him, then He will what? Sit on His glorious throne. Wait a minute. What do you have? Tribulation, second coming, throne. What is that? Kingdom. I cannot explain it in any other way. It is that simple. Scripture tells us how things will pan out at the end. There will be a tribulation period for those who do not believe and specifically for the Jews. There will also be a second coming of Christ. But then there will also be an ushering in of the millennium. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. If you remember back a few weeks, I said that Revelation is literally the unfolding of the eschaton. It is what Jesus revealed how things will pan out. Chapter 6 through to 18 is known as the tribulation period. It correlates with the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, and the expressions in the Old Testament that relate specifically to the day of the Lord. All of those are one subject. So then what happens at the end? Look at verse 6 of chapter 19. In fact, let me, let me back up because this is really interesting. Remember, 6 to 18 is what? Tribulation. While this is taking place. It says, after this, after the tribulation period, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's the church and everyone else who are in heaven. Crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Pause there. So the church and everyone, everyone else is now glorifying God, magnifying His name. Why? He tells us why. For His judgments are true and just. What does that relate to? What has just taken place. Think about this. When we will be in heaven, and God will pour out His wrath in judgment on earth, we will praise God for His judgment. Make sense to you? We will thank God for His holy wrath being poured out on earth on people whom we may love. 
Yes. You will thank God for being a holy, righteous, and just God in that He judges sin. Because that is what a holy, just, and righteous God must do. We will understand it and we will thank Him and praise Him for it. Notice what it says in the latter part of verse 2. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God will judge the world and we will say amen. Jump down to verse 6. Then I heard what what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude in, in In fact, what John is saying is, I can't tell you how many there were. It sounds like a chorus of people. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. When does the marriage of the Lamb take place? Before the second coming, at the end of the rapture. Look at verse 11. Then I saw, so after our rejoicing in heaven over God's righteous judgment, after the marriage of the Lamb where where the bride is presented to Christ in all its glory, then I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head uh, and on his head are many diadems and, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven there we are the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen if you just read up in in the previous section the 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 verse 8 granted her to clothe herself in a white fine linen bright and pure it's the same group of people. We are robed in, in, in white linen, pure. We're following him on white horses. Praise the Lord. When Jesus returns in the fury of his wrath, we will be coming with him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. This is the second coming. He will be made manifest to all the world that He is the ultimate sovereign ruler and um, Lord over all the earth and they will bow. Revelation tells us how things will end. We will rejoice with the Lord in His coming. We will be given to Him as the bride and then He will return to the earth in judgment. And if you notice, the language prior to the um, uh, reigning, and I'll point it out to you, is that of judgment. The day of the Lord is the day of His coming. And I know that it's a period of time, but the revelation of His wrath specifically is the day when He is revealed at the second coming. Take note what it says in verse 20. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet. Who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. 
and those who worship this image is going to be a global religion that everybody will comply to besides those who commit their lives to Christ. Everyone will bow the knee to the Lord. Sorry, to the devil and his false prophet. They will take the mark. They will be compliant. Verse 20. Uh, last, last part of verse 20. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Who's that? The Lord. And all the birds gorged, uh, were gorged with their, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's going to be a violent death for those who bow the knee to the devil and his false prophet. Then, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. I'm going to pause there. I'll get back to that. On this day that Jesus comes, he comes in the fury of, what does it say, the wrath of God to judge the world, but also to establish a kingdom. Both are related to the second coming. It's the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennium period. That is what the second coming signals. Now, if you move the second coming and call it the rapture, if you move it forward and say, well, the church will be raptured at the second coming, then the establishment of the kingdom takes place, then when? When the church is raptured. But there are those who say, well, hang on, no, the the, the kingdom is actually moved way forward than that. The kingdom started when Jesus came to earth. I'll let the, the scripture answer that. Because clearly there is a sequence of events that takes place. There's got to be an end to the tribulation period. There's got to be a judgment, a day of the Lord. There's got to be a a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's got to be an execution of the, the, the false prophet and the beast. And then, chapter 20. Look down at verse 3. The angel comes and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it uh, over him so that he may not deceive the nations no longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's at the end when he uh, tries to assault God and Christ. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image that had not received the mark on their foreheads, uh, foreheads and or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What is that? The millennium period. So clearly the scripture lays out how things will unfold. Tribulation, second coming, millennium. The second coming is the majestic manifestation of the glory of Christ as this world has never seen before. And he himself will usher in the kingdom. That's the second coming. What is the millennium period then? You should know that the millennium period is a specific number of years that will take place on this earth. There are various schools of thought with regards to the millennium. There are the amels, or sorry, the armels, or the postmillennials, or the premillennials. And this is where I'm going to explain a little bit of theology. What do these all mean? The Armels assert that the millennium of Revelation chapter 20, which we just read, is being spiritually fulfilled right now. You are in the kingdom. Hang on. What did we just read? They will reign with him. Do you feel like you're reigning? No, I don't even feel like I'm reigning at home. (laughs) So no, I don't believe that this is the millennium. 
And you will see why it cannot be the millennium because it is such a distinct period of time. If you've got an animal, you will absolutely know this is not the millennium because he's not listening to you or she. It's mostly she animals that don't listen. The armels, I should say this um, before I continue. Our millennialists, the, the term is actually misleading because the R, the privative R, generally negates the thing that follows it. So to say our millennial is actually to say no millennium, but that's not true. They do believe in the millennium, they just don't believe that it is future, they believe that it is now, it is current. So to, to presume that they don't believe in the millennium is an incorrect view of the our millennials. I'm going to give them, I want to honor them even though they're wrong, but I want to give them a, a, a proper hearing. So they claim that things progressively over an indeterminate amount of time will get better. So yes, it starts off small, and then eventually what happens is things become perfect. We just walk into the eternal state. Another feature of this view is that Christians during this period will have an ongoing, increasing influence in this world, in society. John Calvin, for instance, says that the church must be a witness to the invisible reign of Christ. Christ is reigning now invisibly. He's not literally reigning, um, but there's an invisible reign, thereby making the invisible kingdom visible. So we do it. We bring in the kingdom. We change it. The world, that is. What is wrong with this view? Well, firstly, there's no passage to support it. Paul says things will wax worse and worse. Things will get worse. So you can't get worse than better. It's either worse or, or not. There is a distinct moment when things will get better. But it is not progressively getting better. It's progressively getting what? Worse. So then you have the armals, but also the postmals, postmillennialists. And as the name suggests, Christ returns when? At the end of the millennium. But I've already pointed that out to you, right? Scripture is absolutely clear. Post-tribulation, he comes back. Now, as with the armal view... So with the postmodern view, they change the understanding of what the church and Israel is. So the church replaces Israel. Promises to Israel is spiritualized, and so there is no land. We will, um, the land is actually the earth. We will govern the earth. We will rule the earth. We will invade the earth by means of the gospel. So it's a spiritual reign, not a literal reign. Another misunderstanding about the post-millennials is that they don't believe in a thousand-year period. There are those, like D.A. Carson, I believe. He believes in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, but it's not um, the same way as we believe it. He believes that, that it will progressively get better, and then suddenly the millennium starts, and then at the end of it, after that thousand-year period, Christ uh, comes. So it's similar to the Armel view. Uh, but there are those in the post-millennial view who says, no, it's an indeterminate amount of time. It could be 10,000 years, 100,000 years, uh, a million years. We don't know. It could be a long period of time. Society will get better by means of the gospel. We've been preaching for more than 2,000 years. More than 2,000 years. You know what? Things have gotten worse. It's not better. Society is crumbling, not building. Technologically, we are getting smarter, but morally, we're getting dumber. How can you not know what a man and a woman is? Seriously? Anyway, let me move on. So Christ returns at the end of the millennium. That's the post-millennial view. Then we have the pre-millennial view, which is what this church believes in. It's the most consistent out of the three because we take scripture literally. I point it out to you. 3 to 18, tribulation. Chapter 19, coming of Christ. There are a couple of things that takes place before that, but coming of Christ. And then what? The millennium, chapter 20. It's that simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a theological rocket scientist to figure it out. 
It's that simple. God revealed it in His Word, so we take it as it is in His Word. How do we know that the millennium is future? How do we know that this is not the millennium? How can we absolutely know that it will be a thousand year period? Okay. Well, turn over to chapter 20. If you are there, just look down at verse 2. And he sees the dragon, this is the devil, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for what? What does it say? A thousand years. And threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may no longer deceive the nations any longer, sorry, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the, what? Thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Look down at verse 4, the last part of verse 4. On their foreheads or the hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and a holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power. That's important. So once the, the, the eternal the millennium takes place, there is no more death for the believer. For those who will be alive during that time. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. How long will the millennium be? A thousand years. It says that. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I love what MacArthur said about this. He says, quote, When the plain sense of the text makes sense, seek no other sense, for any other sense is nonsense. End quote. Love it. Absolutely true. Listen, if it says a thousand years, guess what? It is a thousand years. Now, here's the counter argument to that. But there is no word as thousand in the Bible. <laughs> really? Are we back to that? It's in a translation. The Latin word... For the Greek word is melee. The Greek word is Kilianism. Kilianism translated into Latin is melee, which means thousand, which is translated into English, which is millennium, which is translated thousand. Yes, the word is in the Bible. We need to stop saying that when, we, when they say that, they mean English translation. The word exists. Maybe not in your translation, but the word exists in the Bible. Just like the word in uh, church does not exist in the Bible because it's translated from a different word in Greek. And then between German and Latin, we get the English word church. One disadvantage that theology has caused though is that the language of this period of time is, is defined by the term millennium. And, and I like the term, it, it's, it's true, there will be a millennium, but it is generally known as the kingdom. That's what the Old Testament call it. That's what the New Testament Jews expected. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. And verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the what? Kingdom to Israel. If you see that word in relation to a promise to Israel, think millennium. Think thousand year period. Because the kingdom is the millennium reign of Christ. It's exactly the same thing. Old Testament prophecies concerning this time is very specific. Listen to Amos 9, 14 through to 15. And keep in mind what the, the disciples are asking the Lord here. God will restore Israel and Jerusalem will never again be 
unrooted. Amos 9 verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit, and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Yes, you will be eating and drinking in the millennium. Oh, I see some brains, minds exploding. Hang on, we will have a resurrected body. How on earth are we able to eat? You will be able to eat because Jesus ate in a resurrected body. It's not difficult to understand. The reason why we think that they won't be eating as Jesus ate is because Plato gave us the idea that we will be spirits in heaven. Sitting on clouds, playing ding dong ding dong ding 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 ding, playing harps, singing lullabies. No! We will be reigning on earth and as long as we live on earth, they will be eating and drinking of wine. And some are saying, Amen. <laughs> Nevertheless, verse 15 says, I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, your God. If I made a promise, if I made a covenant, I will keep it. So, when the Bible speaks about the restoration of Israel, it speaks about that in terms of the millennium, of the kingdom. Turn over to Ezekiel, very interesting section that deals with the same thing. We have not touched on what the millennium is yet, and I'll get there. Ezekiel chapter 34, take note in verse 24. I'm going to read 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and, uh, sorry, he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd, and I Yahweh will be the God. My servant David shall be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. David will reign. Hmm, interesting. Will David reign in the millennium? There's two ways. This is called an interpretive problem. It could be Christ, meaning Christ is spoken of as David, or it could be literally David. And I know good guys on both sides. There is a possibility that the united monarchy, remember Israel, will be restored, meaning there won't be tribes as in the, the two, there won't be two different kingdoms, the um, northern and the southern. It will be united under Jacob, under Israel. It's going to be one tribe again, one nation again. It's possible that there will be a reinstated monarchy, David, reigning over Israel. Or it could be that David is synonymous or pointing forward to Christ who will reign over Israel. Okay, go to Revelation 20. We read it, but I want to point out something. There is a possibility that it may be David. If you ask me my opinion, you can ask me afterwards on Wednesday. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them, thrones imply what? Reigning. Because you reign from a throne. Those... Um, Seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Take note at verse the end of verse 5. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Look at the end of verse 4, sorry. They came to life and reigned with Christ. So who's reigning? Christ. And with him are those who are raised to life. Look at the end of verse 6. 
and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So whose kingdom is it? It is Christ's. Who will reign over all the earth? It is Christ. So then in a true measure, it is possible that David will be raised to reign with Christ. It is possible. That may not be my view, but that doesn't matter at this moment. So wherever you go, whether it's Christ or David, that is not the point. The point is that there will be a capacity to reign given to others, the capacity to reign with Christ. In fact, we will reign with him also. Because we come back with him at the um, second coming. This is specifically given to the, the Jews though. In Zechariah 8, I'm not going to go there. It says that Yahweh will dwell with them and he will reign over all the earth. Pretty clear that it is Yahweh who will reign. So then God's people will reign with him. So it is possible, I'm not discounting the fact that David may be given as king over Israel. Because post-David, there was never ever a united monarchy as in the time of David. So it is possible that God will give David the throne. But then what do we do with the fact that he will sit on the throne of David? Who's going to sit there? David or Christ? I think it's pretty easy, right? Christ. Another aspect of the millennium is that Jerusalem will be the highest peak In all the earth. Look at Malachi chapter 4. The sermon hasn't started yet. I'm laying the groundwork. Behold, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set ablaze, set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts. Jump down to verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh. Who is going to be given authority to step down on, on Israel's enemies? Israel. In Isaiah chapter 2, we are not going to go to it, um, but in Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 7 and, verse, uh, and chapter 11, these passages point out that Israel, sorry, Jerusalem will be elevated, will be the highest mountain over all the earth. How do we know that that's going to happen? Well, we looked at it a little bit last week in Revelation chapter 6 verse 14. It says, and there will be no mountains and the islands will disappear. There's going to be such a cataclysmic event, or I should say that the cataclysmic event will be of such a nature that the highest peak will be Jerusalem. It will be elevated, which means the rest of the world is going to be flattened out. God is going to shake the foundations of this world so that Jerusalem remains. Now, some of us may be thinking, how is it possible if God shakes the world, why is Jerusalem not falling? Do you remember in Exodus, when God caused darkness over the land of Egypt, where was light given? In the midst of the darkness, there was light given to Israel. That is called a miracle. When God shakes the foundations of this world, we are thinking scientifically, impossible. He will hold his hand on Israel and shake the rest of the world so that it flattens out. And Israel, I should say Jerusalem, will remain. Why? Because it's his land. He has claimed it for himself. He calls it my land. So Israel will, Jerusalem will be exalted. And in that place, because now everything else is now flattened out, in that place, he will go into the temple, 
and sit on the throne and reign over his people. So, why is the millennium important? Two reasons. Number one, that was my introduction. Number one, do I have time for the sermon? (laughs) Because of the throne of David. The return of Christ, the millennium, is connected to the throne of David. I've read this passage to you um, earlier on, Matthew 25, verse 31 through to 34. He will sit on his glorious throne. That is the throne of David. It was prophesied in Luke chapter 1, and to him was given the throne of his father, David. He will assume the righteous rule from the throne. In fact, in verse 34, it, uh, Jesus says um, that they will inherit the kingdom. So when he takes his throne, maybe take, uh, take a look there, because it will make more sense if you see it. Matthew 25. When he takes his throne, he also ushers in the kingdom. Verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes... Second coming in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne. So second coming, then the throne. But take note at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come and you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Think about that. The kingdom period, this thousand year reign of Christ from the throne of David has been determined by God before the world existed. So then how can it be spiritual? How can it not be a literal reign from the throne if, it's be, if it has been predetermined by God? If the reign is literal, then the throne has to be literal. If the coming is literal, the throne has to be literal, which means the reign is literal. I have such a struggle with guys who say, yes, he is coming. We believe that Jesus is coming because he says he will come, but he's not literally going to reign. It's connected. When he comes, he will sit on the throne and then give the kingdom to his people. It's that clear. You can't have it in in any other way. In fact, it says they will obtain, inherit, come into the fullness of the reality of the kingdom. It has to be real in order for that to to take place. This is not a spiritual kingdom. It's a physical kingdom. The kingdom is connected to the throne of David. Because the promise was made to him that you will have a king on your throne for how long? Forever. To suggest that God is not going to literally fulfill the promise to David? That is horrendous hermeneutics. That's a failure in the basic reading of the scripture. If his birth is literal, then his throne is literal. Because the promise of the throne is connected to his birth. Therefore, if the throne is literal, the reign also then has to be literal. Secondly, not only because of the connection to the throne, but secondly, the kingdom is important because of the nature of the king. The nature of the king. And here I want to point out to you that there are some factors of the kingdom that we are not experiencing now which will be unique in the time of the kingdom. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11 Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. I have nine again. I'm going to give you four. Since it is time to wrap up. Look at verse 14. Sorry, not, um, not verse 14. From verse 3 and 4. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for 
the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, which means he's on earth, and the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. How will he reign in righteousness? That relates to his second coming. But some say, well, no, this relates to his first coming because of, the, of verse 1 through to 3. Verse 1 through to 3 is definitely first coming. But there's a second aspect to it. Christ did not judge. He did not reign in his first coming. He did not execute justice for the poor, did he? We didn't see that in his first coming. So then by logical deduction, it has to be second coming. So... Firstly, Christ will establish a righteous government on earth over all. Interestingly, they will still be poor in the millennial kingdom. Secondly, Christ will extend life. Look at Isaiah chapter 65. 65 verse 20. No more shall there be in it, this is in the period of his reign, shall there be in it an infant, an, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. In other words, you will not die young. There's going to be no infant death. Praise God, no more murdering of the infant, uh, the innocent children. For the young man shall lie uh, sorry, for a young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. That word there, cursed, is be ashamed. Let's think about that. A young man will die a hundred. You will be a hundred and considered young. I can guarantee you. If you are in your 90s and bordering on 100, you do not consider yourself young. Now there are those of you who are in your 60s who do not consider yourself young. Because you know that with age, things get worse in your body. The joints don't work that well anymore. And there are 30-year-old guys who are heading that way very quickly. But take note what God says here. A sinner who dies, uh, a young man who, who, who dies at a hundred years, or a sinner that dies at a hundred years will be shamed, will be accursed. So dying at a hundred is going to be abnormal, which means Christ, with his presence on earth, will sustain life much longer. This sounds like a sci-fi movie. No. This is what they want to do today, extend life, the next level of evolution. Is what they call it. There's only one way that you will live forever. And that is if Christ changes your life. The third aspect. Not only is there a global government. Righteous government. But there will also be. Sorry I just lost my place. The app closed. There will be an extension of life. And then thirdly. There will be. A change uh, wrong sermon. There will be a change, there will be international peace and a binding of the devil. So because in Revelation chapter 20 we read that the devil gets bound and because he is bound there is no more deception of the nations which means they don't go after Israel anymore. It's interesting to watch what is happening in the Middle East. How the world is gearing up always as an, uh, a means to assault Israel. There will be none of that because Christ will silence them. This millennium period will be unlike anything that this world has ever seen. For instance, there will be a, a drastic change in how the animal world, the natural world is changed. So fourthly, the natural world will be changed. We looked at Isaiah chapter 11 and 65 and let me just summarize it for you. Nursing babes, little infants, like that little 
boy who makes a noise. It's not a problem. He's a boy. He make, they make noise. They will not have a fear of animals in it. In fact, I think it is chapter 11 that says he will play with a cobra. Tell me, any of you children have a cobra pit? No, it's not the kingdom. That's why. The animals, the, the lion will lie with the lamb. Do you have a pet lion who licks your cat? No. We don't have that because it's not the kingdom. So to suggest that this is the millennium period, this is the kingdom of Christ, is to lie. Because the millennium period will be so drastically different that nothing in all of history will be equal to it other than the Garden of Eden. Now, an opposition is made to this. Clearly the throne is important because the promise is to give Christ the throne of David. Is he not on the throne now? Hebrews chapter 1. The argument that they make against this idea that there will be a future throne is because of a few passages and especially this one. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the, Im, the, Im, the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning there's only one who, possess, who possesses and will always possess the fullness of what it means to have the glory of God. He's the exact imprint. Something that we will never ever fully have. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, often making purification for sin. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, there you go. He sat down, which means he sat down on the throne, is what they say. Look down at verse 13. And to which of his angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Is he on the throne? Yes, he is. This is actually a quote from Psalm 110. Now I want you to go there because it actually gives us a little bit of clarity. And I know the New Testament clarifies it as well. But there is such consistency here that it's hard to miss. Look at verse 1. Yahweh said to Adonai, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. So throne on the right hand of the Father, but look at the temporal clause. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Think about that. Sit down until. Is that the permanent throne? It is not. He now possesses the highest, the most exalted position in all of creation. Nobody is on the right hand of the Father other than Jesus. That's his place. It's reserved for him. But there's a time limit where he will sit in that position because it clearly says so. Sit there until. So there's going to be a time when he stands up from that throne and the enemies are made his footstool. When is that? Millennium period. When Christ ascends to the throne of David, his enemies bow before him. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. The until looks forward. He will be sitting on the throne in heaven until he takes his seat on the throne of David. In fact, if you... Took notice in verse 13, it says exactly the same thing. To which of his angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until, temporal clause, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, you will be seated on my right hand until a specific time. Christ is enthroned, but is not ascended to the throne of David. The millennium period is the period where Christ will be given the throne of David where he will reign over all the earth with his people which begins the eternal reign. Now, 
What is the eternal state? I'll quickly wrap up with this. There's two things that take place before we get to the eternal state. The defeat of Satan at the end of chapter 20. He's released after the thousand years are over. He turns the world on God and Christ crushes them. That's the final judgment. And then we have the great white throne. Then I saw great, a great white throne and him who sat on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There will be a judgment at the end of the millennium. Then we walk into the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Couple of ways to interpret that. There are those who say that the renovation that is taking place in the uh, tribulation period is the recreation of the heavens and the earth. There's another view that says at the end when Jesus Christ comes at the second coming, he changes the entire scope of the world in that he ushers in, ushers in an entirely new uh, heaven and a new earth. This takes place after that though. This is after the great white throne, after the millennium period. Listen to Peter what it says in 2 Peter 3 and 10. All the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its world will be burned up. Again, two ways to interpret that. Either it will, the fire will engulf the earth or it will destroy the earth. I believe it's the latter. There will be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. I separate from my theology professor who believes it's a renovated heaven and a renovated earth. It is at this stage that God says, and there will be no more tears. God will wipe away all tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. All things related to the prior previous earth will be removed from us. In the millennium period, we reign over the unrighteous. So you will have unbelieving people with believing people living on earth in a uh, sanctified state, meaning that Christ will reign over them. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it is only God's people who enter the new heaven and the new earth. There are no unrighteous in that. A period of time. It is only God with his people who will live during this period. The rest of them, the end of chapter 20 verse 11, they get thrown into the lake of fire. There is a life with God and there is a life apart from God. The eternal judgment that chapter 20 verse 11 speaks about is the eternal wrath that God will pour on you as he separates you from him for eternity. That is eternal wrath and judgment that you will receive if you do not know Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But for us who do, there is the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. I like what Peter says in response to this fact. Listen to what he says in chapter two, uh, ch chapter 3 verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these be diligent to, uh, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, if you know that that is true, that he is coming, what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the return or the coming down to earth of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I think it's a brand new heaven and a brand new earth that God will usher in. But it is only reserved for those who know him. 
That is the eternal state. So part and parcel of the eternal state is the realization or the bringing about of the new heaven and the new earth. And then we will forever be with the Lord. Listen to Revelation chapter 22 verse 5. And night will be no more. They will, they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their God, and they will reign forever and ever. Interestingly, uh, it could mean that they, meaning we with him, or it could be him, they, the Lord God in the uh, Trinity, will reign forever. I, I don't think it refers to the Trinity. I think it refers to us as saints will reign as we are with him, because he will reign for eternity, we will reign with him for eternity. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. What does John say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the hope that we have as God's people. There will be a millennium reign. Yes, there will also be a judgment. Yes, but there is a future Revelation that will be fulfilled when we will be with him and reign with him forever. Father, we are thankful to you for your great kindness toward us. While we are on this earth, you have shown us grace. You have given us the gospel to believe and you have given us your spirit to convict. We pray, Lord, that those who are not your children would heed your call, would bow the knee now, For there is a future day when even if they do not believe, they will still bow, but in fear and trembling. We thank you for the future hope and for the the blessedness of the realization that Christ will come back. We are thankful to you for the tremendous blessing and the theology that is taught in Scripture, the clarity with which you have given to us how things will unfold. Christ will reign on the throne of David forever. And we will reign with him forever. We thank you again for your great kindness and your blessing to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Now we pray that your word would change us for your glory. For your name's sake we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.